being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right we are here today to talk about some sad irish shit as trash just memorably said to me <laughs> listeners you may recall trash from the episode that we did on the novel the kindly ones or the episode that we did on the wind that shakes the barley he's great He's a cool Irish-American dude who likes to read. What's better than that? He's done some writing over at Apocalypse Confidential, which you can check out. You can find Trash at Big Bite... Fuck. <laughs> Biden Big Boy on Twitter. <laughs> How are you doing today, Trash? I'm doing all right. Uh, thank you so much, Jimmy, for that very kind intro. <laughs> Nothing more dangerous than the mick they taught how to read. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you think about it, reading is one of the most economical and cheap hobbies you can have. Oh yeah, I mean there's a there, there's a um a very material reason why I spent so many of my uh, so much of my adult life reading books, but <laughs> anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, we are not here today to talk about a book, at least not directly. <laughs> no, we are actually doing the Hibernian Film Club. We are talking about two films today. The first one I recommended that Trash watch, and the second one Trash recommended that I watch. Naturally, due to the nature of the podcast and the subject matter that I tend to fixate on, we're probably going to end up talking more about the film I recommended, but that's not to say that the other film is not good, and we will discuss it as well. So, the two films that we're talking about today, of course, are No Japs at My Funeral and The Commitments. A nice uh, juxtaposition between... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the duality of the Irish thing. Yes. <laughs> the Irish soul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you right up front, because I've, I've heard this recently, and I'm not trying to make light of racial slurs. I've heard that Jap is considered a racial slur. I mean... Yeah. It is considered, I mean, it's like a term referring to Japanese people. And I can see that there's maybe a level of disrespect with shortening it. But I don't feel like calling a German Jerry is like that disrespectful, you know? No, I don't either. But I think maybe the Jap thing ties into um, like a, maybe you could base it in like MacArthur's occupation, mm. you know, of, of Japan and stuff. And because like. I, I and I I'm certainly I I'm just kind of talking on my ass here, but to you know on to my eyes like the etymology of it would like stem from uh like the racial um propaganda of the U.S. in World War II and stuff, mm -hmm. and maybe coming from like U.S. servicemen um that were stationed in Japan. Yeah, like I'm not going to like point at a Japanese person and say Jap. But at the same time, I don't feel bad saying the title of the movie, at least, somewhere in there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't know, sometimes with, uh, you know, racial uh, epithets or slurs, I don't know, I feel like there's somewhat of a, a grade to them, maybe. But I could be totally yeah. wrong, and maybe I'm just being a pig-headed, uh, pink American. But um, No, I think you're yeah. right there, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Lord knows Mick is really pretty soft on that gradient compared to other 
slurs we can think of, right? Well, yeah, especially the one that is adopted from Mick that I won't say oh, on yeah. air. But look it up on Urban Dictionary. It's fun. Uh, <laughs> and that's what people come into program to chill for. <laughs> White dudes talking <laughs> about racial slurs and how acceptable they are. Mm. <laughs> yes, we, <laughs> we are the arbiters. Or, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I don't think I'm not saying I'm trying to litigate it here. So just getting it out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it's it's a good point, because the reason why this is in the title is because of a different person being racist. So we'll we'll get. Yeah. To that. <laughs> I, yeah. I think the, uh, the the context of the title itself is uh, crucial to it. And I mean, and <clears throat> also just really is, you know, in line with like the whole no wave, uh, you know, scene in and of itself. Um mm. Yeah, I think that it's it's very uh, uh what's the word e- or you know emblematic or yeah you know v- uh, very uh characteristic of the of the no wave scene to kind of yeah to use this like edgy provocative you know kind of grab you initially transgressive kind of kind of you know words and imagery and stuff so that's a good point so I have a description a summary of this film that I'd like to read. I got this from the Museum of Modern Art, the MoMA, who I guess they filmed this at some point, right? Or screened it, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, I think screened it. Yeah. yeah. I went to the, the MoMA one time. How was it? It was fun. It was, um, the the most exciting thing there was they had an exhibit on uh, Yugoslavian uh, architecture. Mm. And, you know, especially from like, yeah, the Tito period and just like the bizarre gonzo, like space brutalism of Yugos, which was really cool. But then I remember I asked a, uh, I just wanted to ask a curator, but being a tourist in New York, I asked a security guard and it was just like some guy from the Bronx that's getting paid like 17.50 an hour who doesn't know anything about art. <laughs> he's just, he's just like, ah, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, some pretty wild buildings we got here, you know? Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, God. All right. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that does sound cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's stupid. We we went to New York and then we actually didn't see the MoMA. And I do feel bad, but it's like, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to take in when you're there. Mm. But. but yeah, so the MoMA screened this at some point and they wrote this up. No Japs at My Funeral, 1980. USA, United Kingdom, directed by James Nares. Nares or Nares? What do you think? Uh, I feel like I heard it pronounced once 12 years ago. Um, Nares? I'll say Nares. Yeah, that sounds good. Starring Jackie, Lindsay Smith, Michael McClard. Cinematography by Nares and McClard. Video, 60 minutes. Named after a provision in Lord Lewis Mountbatten's will, made public after his assassination by the IRA in 1979. This video work by no-wave artist James Nares is a portrait of Northern Ireland's liberation struggle through the stories of one IRA operative. Close-up shots of the man are intercut with British television reports on the Troubles, recasting the conflict as one over control of information. IRA man Jackie Cooley chronicles accounts of imprisonment and brutality at the hands of the English, along with haunting details like the IRA's habit of adding petrol to the bombs to make 
bright colors in media photographs of their attacks. As described by Gary Indiana in a 1980 East Village Eye interview, No Japs is a deconstructed propaganda piece that demolishes the British version of events in Northern Ireland. It has the same formal properties as a typical TV documentary, but is aimed to show the bias of what is known on TV as truth, preserved by the Museum of Modern Art, New York. So I think that's a pretty great summary for one thing. Uh, there's a lot of things that I think we're going to hit on that, you know, are in this concise little summary. Uh, let's see here. I did want to say for the listener's sake, this is on YouTube, the full thing. If the fidelity looks like shit, just know it's no way if it's supposed to look like that. Exactly. It has the vibe of like, you know, a conspiracy of silence or something. Just like <laughs> looks bad, but this time it's on purpose. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very rough editing, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so James Nares is now known as Jamie uh, because she's a British transgender woman now who lived in New York City since 1974. She was in the No Wave movement, like we've been referencing, making both No Wave films, playing in No Wave bands, and also doing painting. She's probably best known for the film Rome 78, which figures uh, Lydia Lunch and a bunch of various new york artists now trash <laughs> you're probably more familiar with no wave than i am i'm familiar with like some of the bigger names but like it's never been my thing specifically tell me yeah i mean i uh i did get kind of into like no wave stuff uh in my early 20s um you know just by through being into like hardcore um, and like punk music and stuff um, and being kind of like a pretentious snobby 20 year old. Um, and like, yeah, I don't know. I, I've always liked uh, like, you know, Lydia Lunch and DNA, um, but, you know, Swans is possibly one of my favorite bands of all time. And I know that mm. they have their issues uh, personally speaking, but uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I love, all of swan's uh discography but um and as far as like but you know that's just like more so the music side of things um as far as like the film side of things i mean i uh i mean when i was in my early 20s i you know uh was into vice <laughs> and stuff you know this was like it was like 12 13 years ago but like hey man so was i <laughs> yeah exactly and uh and yeah they uh they, they did like a lot of or they had Richard Kern who would take pictures of pretty girls and stuff. And he had a very like porny vibe, but he was like a no way photographer. And mm. that was kind of like the whole thing was like skeeziness and like porn. And yeah, we used to, we, we, we like got a couple of his movies at one point when I, but yeah, I mean, not something that I, except for like, the band swans and really more like later period swans. Um, I, it's not like, something i return to all that much um but like musically just artistically but it is definitely interesting and you know that era of new york is definitely very storied and you know this would have been you know when like son of sam is happening um or mm -hmm. you know maybe that that's more of like i guess a, a prologue to like the no wave thing but um definitely informed it and stuff and uh yeah so 
Yeah, like with suicide, they were they were kind of no wave, right? Yeah, I think they maybe predate no wave a little because I feel like no wave mm. um, is, is more like starting in eighty maybe, and mm, that's a good. But point. I guess they yeah, but I guess they could definitely be felt of as like I, I definitely would lump them in with kind of that whole aesthetic. Sort of like uh, Sonic Youth as well. Like some of these guys oh, became yeah. commercially mm-hmm. viable and some did not, right? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, Sonic Youth is like definitely part of this whole thing. And uh, yeah, their early stuff is like very abrasive, very atonal, like noise stuff. If people aren't familiar um, with their early, early work. And, you know, then, of course, they went on to become the Sonic Youth we know today, which is, yeah, I, I like Sonic Youth too. I don't listen to them a whole lot, but. Yeah, I don't find myself revisiting that often, but for sure, yeah. Because, like, okay, so there's the film, the painting, the uh, the music. I think in the, like, I think No Wave was necessarily, like, I think the music probably was more famous than the, uh, the film and certainly more famous probably than the painting scene going on <laughs> yeah right? yeah it's very much yeah it's it's very much i mean um just what you would think of i guess as uh um uh kind of like a cliche of like postmodernism or whatever i mean mm. yeah just i mean it's it's this rebelliousness but with no actual like now that the you know i, I think patty smith is kind of like a big uh precursor to no wave and stuff and kind of her whole you know um ideology that you also have you know new york just being completely bankrupted um in the 70s and then going on into the 80s it just gets even more bombed out you know more deprived you know yeah just very much a uh art art of uh, you know nihilism yeah yeah a lot of nihilism for sure yeah and i wouldn't say more apolitical than not but or at least to say not pointedly political yeah would you agree probably yeah 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 um kind of like beat movement vibes but in the 90s and specifically in new york and specifically more nihilistic maybe yeah more nihilistic but then also uh i think more greater i I feel like access to information really plays into a lot of this and that actually kind of you know, ties kind of my thinking into what the film itself is about because the the, the pre presenting like this, you know, the, the IRA were you know presented in the media as just um, straight, you know, terrorists. That's just mm-hmm. their terrorism. They're just blowing up people, cafes for no reason, killing children, doing car bombs, and not presenting any kind of alternative to that. And you really didn't have any kind of access to that. Um, so what I think they're doing with the, this film is, you know, really it, it's, and, and this ties into so much of the troubles too, in, in just terms of black propaganda and stuff like that, of um, it just being an information war or like, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get to it when I guess we start talking about the documentary, but like, you know, one bomb in England's worth 150 in Ireland. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes, but I think I'm I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but yeah. No, for sure. 
I think one thing I'd say, I guess Jim Jarmusch is just about the, the like the only breakout no wave art film filmmaker maybe. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. like not a lot of these guys ended up I think being like commercially viable. Not that that's like, first of all, not that Jarmusch is actually that much of a money maker in the first place. But no, no, but um. But yeah, I mean, his his later films are definitely a lot more palatable. And, and yeah, I kind of forgot about him when I was thinking about the Noah thing. But I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have seen those couple of early films he did. And I mean, they are kind of a slog. And I like <laughs> Tarkovsky, you know, but those, those to me were a slog. But <laughs> Hit or miss is what I would call Jarmusch. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
so okay so we've established right like we both are somewhat acquainted with no wave but like it's for me my entry point for this film was very much the subject matter not the trappings of the medium or you know the specifics of the genre or what have you uh as the summary said right the film purports to be an interview with an ira operative or i guess maybe you'd say ex-operative or veteran operative maybe um retired yeah yeah because yeah. <laughs> this guy who's being interviewed his name is jackie and he's on the lamb in new york city like i said this is on youtube even like i i think it would actually function as a if you put it on in the background and weren't even watching, like it would probably work because it's very audio. It's, it's an interview. Like they're just talking the whole time. So like, I think you could even put it on in the background if you needed to. Right. Yeah. There's not really too much of a visual component to it. I mean, aside from, I think they draw out a map of Ireland in chalk on the floor early on. And, and then like, yeah, there's some like, footage or you know street footage of like interviews with, but i mean yeah it's 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 mainly audio a few shots of people shooting at each other but not like cool action footage like mainly what you would lose and i'm not advocating not watching it visually but like you would you mostly see a weedy irishman talking and then these like weedy new york artists interviewing him it's pretty funny actually yeah sitting around drinking paps blue ribbon blasting ziggies yeah uh what's important too is to note that this film came out in 1980 which means the interview presumably was either 79 or 80 thereabouts and that's important to know because in the timeline of the troubles which by the way this is not a history of the troubles lord knows that would take forever (laughs) yeah uh Basically, this is not the hottest period of the Troubles, but it was very much a period where they didn't know that the worst was behind them. And there were still a whole lot of things going on that didn't make anyone feel like, you know, well, we're getting out of this. Like, it was a very real struggle, very much still active at the time. Yeah, I guess, um, would this be, have come out or been made prior to the hunger strikes good question i looked up a timeline and i was trying to like put it side by side and everything and it looks to be that the prisoner struggles were starting up and you you probably noticed he mentions them but the most famous incidents had not yet happened okay so like yeah there was a point in this in the troubles where like a lot of the conflict moved to moved its focus to like the prisoner struggles and that was in the process of happening pretty much as this interview would have been taking place oh yeah 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 i'm looking it up in the book right now yeah so yeah it looks like the real height of that was like 81 so Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) oh i was gonna say which i mean um we touched on the hunger strikes but i think we may hold off on really getting into that for a later episode for a very special episode (laughs) (laughs) honestly i've been watching so many um fucking like uh youtube docs on like the ira and stuff too and just like kind of my whole life has kind of lately just been become the ira (laughs) 
disregard that NSA agent listening. <laughs> I've joked with people like, because <laughs> I do cut a lot, and I was joking that I should have been keeping all of the things that I cut for some super episode <laughs> with people just saying wild shit, myself yeah. included. <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, bloopers real. I was going to ask, actually, so you've been watching a lot of YouTube documentaries on the Troubles. How is that? Mm, it is interesting. Um, yeah, Vice has done um, a couple of documentaries on it. One of them was like their whole Borders series, which was um, somewhat fair-handed towards the the nationalist IRA side of things. Um but and and you know mainly just condemning like I don't know it was kind of just you know sort of low key like Vice's whole I don't know uh, open borders globalist you know like um, like well what does this border even mean man why are we even doing this kind of thing but um, yeah it was fairly good um, and then they uh, Vice has another documentary on YouTube from like 2014 I think. Um, where they're talking about um, RAD in Northern Ireland, which is um, acronym for uh, Republicans or Republican Action Against Drugs, which is mm. a wing of the IRA that um, basically goes out and like warns uh, drug dealers to stop drug dealing or dealing drugs to the Catholic population, and then if they continue to ignore said warnings, will you know summarily. Uh, either cripple by kneecapping, which is shooting him in the knees or, uh, execute them. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and, and Vice's whole thing is kind of like, well, this is kind of crazy, man. You can't even deal drugs. And, um, you know, <laughs> typical <laughs> vice fashion. Uh, but, uh, yeah. And then there's some other, uh, more recent documentaries. Um, on it that are just you know just deploring the violence the horrible violence of the ira and the loyalist paramilitaries which i mean i think we can definitely get into a little bit more but the the uh the violence undertaken is is different in um tone and uh i guess intent between the two paramilitaries of the you know the nationalist catholic ira and the loyalist Protestant, you know, UVF or whichever iteration of that you want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, you know, context is really everything. And, you know, the, the, the book we use um, to kind of supplement watching these two movies, uh, Tim Pat Coogan's The Troubles is, uh, is very dense. And, um, you know, the, the, the entire struggle is very, uh, uh, convoluted and there's a lot of different moving parts within because you know you're talking about a history of eight nine hundred years you know really and uh mm -hmm. but there's so many different moving parts and stuff and so when you're talking about like the violence of say the ira who you know would and and not saying that the ira didn't fuck up sometimes because they definitely did but like you know they typically tried to like and sorry, Jimmy, I'm I'm probably like jumping ahead a bit here. <laughs> no, man. I think that but, this this yeah, this episode it'll just be like that. It's all good. Okay. Um, but yeah, like uh 
so these these YouTube documentaries will uh the the more recent ones will like condemn the violence and not really give you the context of like the IRA would bomb buildings, they would try to not kill civilians. You know, of course, if British soldiers or loyalist paramilitary died, that was typically good. Um, whereas like the Protestant paramilitaries typically carried out assassinations and or like firebomb homes of people. Like yeah, fat. exactly. Yeah, and, and those assassinations were typically precipitated by long, long, um, some would say ritual, quote unquote, uh, torture sessions um, before the, and, and a lot of the times the, it wouldn't even really remember if the person was involved with the IRA or not. All that mattered was that they were Catholic. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have two very different, I think, types of violence. And, um, you know, the typical mainstream viewing of this nowadays is just condemning all of it in, in blanket terms. Um, but yeah. No, absolutely. Like Coogan points out that like the first cop uh, in Northern Ireland to die was killed by a freaking Protestant like psychopath. Like yeah. the first like bombs were like Protestant bombs. Like mm -hmm. and the targets were always completely different. Like it's absolutely insane. Yeah. And like th there are a couple of major incidents where the IRA did really like fuck up. Like mm -hmm. uh, thinking particularly of like, I I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Enniskillen, you know, and. Which one was that? Just remind me. Uh, I believe Enniskillen was, um, it was a uh, funeral uh, for a couple of British soldiers that had been killed. And so it was just like their families and stuff. And then the, they bombed it and uh, they didn't mean to kill the funeral procession, but they wound up killing uh, a bunch of their, you know, just civilian family members and stuff, um, mm -hmm. which was not good to do. No, it's not. Like, here's what I'll say. I'm not going to chalk up every bad thing the, I, the provisional IRA did to false flag attacks and agent provocateurs that said some of the some of these fuck-ups were not you know in like not actually carried out by the provost that's what i would oh, say oh yeah and yeah absolutely yeah. another disclaimer of course for me and probably for trash like i am trying my damnedest <laughs> to learn all this stuff for sure, I'm not an expert, <laughs> less than in other topics that I tend to talk about. So, like, I might say some things that are wrong, for one thing, but I'm not, I'm, I'm trying hard to be accurate here. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, it, it, it is difficult to jump into this because it is, you know, like, um, I, I have very close ties, I guess, like, familial wise with Ireland like my family is very Irish um we're fairly recent to America but like you know at the end of the day I'm still an, an American I grew up here mm -hmm. blah 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 uh so culturally though um you know we're, we're talking about a, a different culture um different country and so I guess some of the stuff that like that would just be like known to either us or like the audience, you know, it's just like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're kind of being dropped into a very, very different set of circumstances. 
when looking at this, but it is, I think, extremely interesting and mm-hmm. kind of the broader lessons you can draw from the struggle in Ireland, you know, are, you know, as you know, Jimmy, like are very applicable to just about everything else in the world as to how power operates, especially in like colonial situations. Yeah. Like they were making a lot of pointed comparisons at the time in the early days of the troubles, they they were very consciously evoking American civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And then later on when things got really ugly, they were very aware of the parallels between Northern Ireland and Israel. Yeah, or uh, Vietnam as well. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the terminology that um, that the British occupying forces would use was based off of, you know, admittedly uh, failed uh, <laughs> uh, strategies that were employed in in Vietnam. Uh, you know, they talk about like there's there's Vietnam Vietnamization and then Ulsterization, which are essentially it's the same idea of having you know the people the the right people local natives uh you know take care of the problem themselves and then we don't have to lose troops or expend resources on it yeah and what that means in practice is basically creating serial killers mind you not like program to kill style more like gangs of people who carry out killings in a serial fashion yeah which but i mean i Honestly, you know, with the Shea Kill Butchers are um, kind of getting pretty close to program to kill type territory. Honestly, honestly. But uh, okay, so back to the film here. Well, actually, let me let me say this up front, right? We're going to say Catholic Protestant a lot. And Americans, I think, frequently misunderstand this as a like a sectarian conflict, but like it's om- it's it's very strange isn't it because like catholic was almost like a stand in for like a race but these are like not fundamentally super different racially and like none of these people most of, okay most of these people were not motivated for or against each other due to actual religious feelings but more that it was like a the signifier of the out group or the in group right Yes. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think, you know, this is kind of the thing, especially when it comes to, I think, Europe more broadly, um, that we as Americans um, don't quite understand, like, you know, these like divides between groups, but like the divide between, say, like the Anglo-Irish Protestants and the, you know, like, uh, celtic irish uh catholics is Mm -hmm. it's not something that is like obviously like really detectable um by physical features everybody's pale there's some redheads that's just what it is (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but like you know um culturally though speaking and like you know they're very obviously i think you know especially to somebody from there like if they see the opposing group they can pick them out relatively quickly as but then again on that on that same token like there were some mistakes made um you know like these Mm -hmm. protestant psycho gangs would sometimes accidentally wind up killing uh like a a protestant ulsterman you know um thinking that they were catholic 
so yeah like they're 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 I feel like if you're if you're from there, this is more much easy, much more easily delineated. But yeah, I don't know. It is it's it's very interesting. It's weird, like, right? It is racial, but it's not. It is religiously oriented more than racial, but it's not. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's almost like it's class based, but it's not. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I would say that like the class thing, honestly, is is maybe the the bigger like signifier um, to a lot of these people. Like, you know, if you see some kid walking down the street with busted up shoes and their toes sticking out, and you know, look like they haven't bathed in a while, and you're in Belfast in during this time period, you can probably pretty easily, you know, pick them out as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, and. You know, and, and obviously, if you're a good Protestant and you see a Protestant child in such a condition, well, my God, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, help them. So. <laughs> so let's see here. So the film pretty much starts with Jackie talking. There's not a ton of introduction period, but they pretty much like they give him like a they sort of lob a question at him and he just starts talking about basically fighting in the IRA. Now I wanted to run this past you. <laughs> I pro I swear we're going to get into it right now, but like, okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask you the possibility it's been raised before. It's hard to find that much about this film, but I did see one or two people wondering whether this guy actually was in the IRA. I got the read that it seemed genuine. Like he does. He, he seemed genuine to me. What about you? I think yeah, I mean, I think so. Just given the time that or, or when it was recorded um, and his knowledge of what exactly on the street level was going on that that we know now due to hindsight and research and, you know, the uh, spread of information and stuff that are available to, to you and I. But for that time period of when mm. they would have been making this, there's no way that I feel like he could have made these claims or, you know, re- relayed a lot of this information without actually having firsthand, you know, been in it. That's a good point, actually. I didn't think of that. Because, like, it all seems genuine to me, but you're right. The control of information would have been such that it would have been very hard to, like, create this without. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Which is really, I think, you know, what what makes the the film itself, in in my interpretation, really stand out, and and I think is kind of the broader, um, you know, what makes it interesting beyond just the conflict itself. And you know, you may a, a person I, I feel like could view this as having no interest whatsoever in Northern Ireland or the troubles, Catholic versus Protestant, and just purely look at it as an example of information like warfare or or you know the 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 spread of information um and in the in the pre-internet era you know Mm. and and how that affects things yeah no for sure because like when i was watching this i wasn't thinking information warfare but now that you know you're bringing it up i can really see that yeah and the other thing too is like he really doesn't like make himself sound like a badass at all in fact he doesn't 
to my knowledge, actually admit to anything, which is so, like, uh, that's, I think, a tip off that he's actually in the IRA because he doesn't <laughs> say he did anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, he's very, uh, he's very coy and he's very um, crafty about, you know, just dancing along the edges of, of this information. And, uh, and also I think, you know, a lot of it too comes off as kind of work a day or whatever. Um, like, yeah, you know, this is just what life kind of is as a Catholic in Belfast is like, you know, you just kind of, if that, if that makes sense at all, um, it's not mm-hmm. glorifying it really necessarily. It's just sort of like, Hey, here's this like dumb, funny story. You want to hear it? And it's like about torture or something, you know? Yeah. But, Whereas yeah. like if you were to have like an Irish American or, you know, even someone else try to like, like, can you imagine like the stupid stories they would come up with to make themselves sound cool? And it's just like fighting in the troubles was not cool. It was horrifying. And like Jackie actually says, you end up like only doing it maybe just under a couple of years because you are fighting for a while and they don't know who you are. Then for a time, you're effective, maybe, if you're lucky. Then you're either killed, or they you have to go on the lam, or you, they send you to prison. Like, the whole career of a revolutionary, or I don't know if revolutionary is even the right word, actually. Like, a soldier in the IRA is like, he said, I think, it was only a couple of years, usually. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of goes into Coogan's book and when he's talking about you know the um when the provisionals revamp the ira into a cell structure as opposed to kind of a more Mm -hmm. traditional military and it it is interesting as well because like a lot of what the ira did both from like talking about the previous episode we did the war of uh irish independence um you know in the uh 1918 I think it was like 21, wasn't it? I think or, 18 was the uprising. Or yeah. what? Or no, wait. No, fuck, maybe Easter I'm Rising correcting 19... you wrong. <laughs> Easter <laughs> Rising was 1916. I think the War of Independence was like 1819. And then the Civil War was like 2021. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, they're like, the IRA really both from this early period and then to this later period when the troubles starts really developed modern urban guerrilla warfare, like as we know it, Um, you know, and obviously there was other um, groups that, that influenced modern urban guerrilla warfare, like the Algerians or, Mm -hmm. you know, the Palestinians and the PLO and stuff, but all these groups were kind of like learning from each other. But I think honestly, like a lot of the original impetus is coming from the IRA and like, how to you know disappear into the the population as a whole because obviously little tiny Ireland deprived Ireland can't face Britain you know in traditional military you know full frontal uh, confrontation but you know they, they they do develop these ways and yeah one of those things is just this cycling nature and keeping groups small you know a cell of IRA volunteers is like four guys mm-hmm. you know with one dude reporting back to, to a higher up. That's an interesting thing too. Cause like the cell structure is not something that like someone, some genius just thought up it. 
like organizations have cell structures when the head of an organization gets lopped off more than once and then they realize they have to be in cell structures yeah 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 exactly and and so much of this um is a war of you know like going back to yeah what i was just saying but it is a war of information and is a war of intelligence you know Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah intel is everything in the troubles and it was in fact not that dissimilar to you know back in michael collins day right they pretty much won that war off of intelligence and the troubles was a fascinating conflict because it was so focused on intelligence as well on both sides yeah which you know brings up <laughs> just at least in in my my like so many interesting like there's just so much that like you know the u.s imperial war machine could have or you know like i guess not just the u.s but like just so the western capitalist sphere as a whole could have learned from you know like um so for instance like in the in tim pat coogan's book he he talks about he's talking to um one of these british commanders and he asks them like did you study like so he's talking to this guy in the 1980s or 90s the troubles have been going on for a while and he asked him like did you study at all uh like Michael Collins uh, strategy of like guerrilla warfare, Michael Collins being the leader of the Irish forces in the war of independence back in 1918. And the British guys just kind of like, Oh no, my, uh, Michael Collins didn't really come up much. It's like, it's sort of like the same, like, like the U S could have like learned some of the cell structure stuff when they were dealing with like Vietnam or, you know, on and I don't know. It's um, it is just interesting that like, and and I think nowadays they certainly have, like the security state has learned how yeah. this operates. They screen the the <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, the Battle of Algiers. They screen that at the Pentagon now. So I know yeah. that like for sure there's been some learning, but yeah, yeah. But you know, interestingly, uh, you know who else screened the Battle of Algiers right after it came out? Who it was the IRA? <laughs> nice. Yeah, I love that movie. And I love that movie. Fucking great movie. It is a great movie. I mean, honestly, not to be like a both sides guy, but it's honestly kind of, I wouldn't say sympathetic to the French, but it gives them a fair, like, it gives them lines. They are, they could be viewed sympathetically themselves. Like, it's just a good movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, yeah, one of my top movies of all time. It's been mm -hmm. a number of years since I've seen it, but. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
Jackie, he says early on in the film, he points out that like most people fighting in the provisional IRA are like between the ages of 16 to 21, which is like wild to think about. But I think I'm pretty sure that's true. Oh, yeah. I mean, is it really any different from, you know, like soldiers in Vietnam, you know, being, Mm -hmm. you know, 18 babies, child soldiers and yeah. Yeah. And then if you consider not to like strain this metaphor too much, but if you think about like gangs, like US gangs, I mean, the ages skew younger than 18 in, you know, some gangs, like just that sort of like, there's something similar, I think, with like the poverty the violence that already exists and then like recruiting kids younger than 18. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, also the time in your life, I mean, I, you know, you're just raging with hormones. You don't know anything and you know, you're looking, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. I could definitely see myself getting caught up. In... <laughs> yeah, you know? no, for sure. Especially if you see, some of the things these kids saw yeah you've only known deprivation your whole life you see people get firebombs exactly like the the rough living of an ira volunteer is not all too that much worse than the rough living of just being a normal citizen you know mm-hmm. living in a poor catholic neighborhood of belfast so now jackie says that uh when you're recruited for the ira that they actually try to, to they try to discourage you and they tell you like you will end up dead. Yeah. And they, they also make you attend like a number of lectures. Like if he said mm-hmm. like 12 lectures or whatever. Just to inform you, you know, inform them of like the Republican movement and just like the history and everything, which it's interesting, right? Because that wasn't being taught in schools. Some like some of the, like a probably a lot of the Irish Catholic youth didn't know that shit oh yeah no i mean because yeah you know they're probably going to parochial schools as well and obviously the vatican was not lending any kind of critical support (laughs) to Mm -hmm. uh the republican movement so yeah at several points in the film jackie argues that you know the the provisional ira was supported by the vast majority of the population i think that's what he says Mm mm-hmm and that, of course, would be like the of the Irish Catholics, of course. So he says that he views the vet, 
he views the majority of provisional IRA actions as defensive in nature because the provosts were all about self-defense. I know that when people, especially maybe just American listeners who are not familiar with the struggle, they think of the troubles, they think people getting blown up in car bombs. <laughs> it can be hard to view that as a self-defense situation, right? Yeah, yeah, so much so that they named a famous drink after it, which <laughs> always kind of hit me the wrong way. You're not a fan of the car bomb? No, no, I mean, not only just because it's a bit much, but uh <laughs> it's not exactly a not a joke so <laughs> yeah exactly a lot of people die so yeah no for sure like it's i think it's hard for people to see maybe the middle or the end of the troubles and then re and they just sort of would it's easy to just condemn the violence because you're not involved you're not there you're not a part of it what i think people miss is the first part of the troubles where it was basically a civil rights movement that kept getting like people shot to death or you know people like beaten to death by police or like you know actual riots where cops would just start shooting people like there there's a clear like process and escalation going on is what i would say go ahead oh yeah absolutely i mean like that's the thing is that like the troubles begin from 1968 obviously a big year um and they're informed by the civil rights movement in the united states and mm -hmm. so the initial tactics employed by like the republican nationalist catholics who want to united ireland um and the british out are initially peaceful marches you know and yeah peaceful demonstrations and stuff and you know obviously there's a lot of violence that happens in the u.s and stuff um i just i think that some of these marches in northern ireland though they end instead of with fire hoses with uh, machine guns mm -hmm. you know and that's a bit different and then you factor in just the tradition in ireland of you know uh insurrection and you know uh actual violence you know being you know, perpetuated by, you know, underground Republican cells. And it's it's not that much harder to pick it back up again kind of thing. But it, like the thing to remember, though, is that like initially in the late 60s, like this was like a peaceful movement. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I really like that Coogan emphasizes, you know, there's so many lenses to look at the troubles, but one of the ones that he focuses on is housing and voting mm -hmm. being heavily intertwined the there's so much to this but the long story is that in northern ireland ostensibly a democracy it was not one man one vote or one woman one vote it was one household one vote and that skewed wildly to the protestants who then used that position of like one house one vote to keep Irish Catholics from having housing. So you would have like multi-generational families stuck in one house with only one vote if they're lucky. Obviously there's like gerrymandering shit that went on as well. So like mm -hmm. this was just like a complete bottleneck of democracy. There's really no way to get out from under this unless you did some sort of like 
civil rights thing, which they tried, and then the violence started. That's like the very short version of the troubles in the early stages, right? Yeah, yeah. What what led up to the actual, um, you know, mili- militarization and, you know, uh, eventual birth of the provisional IRA. Yeah. Like, it's wild to me. Okay, Trash, you know, you're pretentious. I'm pretentious. It's okay. <laughs> you know those, like, sort of, like, theory cell type of leftists who love to talk about, for, for some fucking reason, they love to talk about, like, France and, like, 1968. Yeah, yeah, the the people obsessed with uh, DeBoer and uh, Situationists and stuff. Like, I get it. It's kind of cool, but it's kind of like jacking off or whatever. Like, okay, like enough of that. Like, yeah, I what I don't understand is why people don't, particularly Americans, don't look much, much more at something like Northern Ireland, nineteen sixty eight. Seems a lot more relevant, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, or at, at least a lot more like effective and in, in stuff I, I think you know again um it, it all kind of ties back into like the circulation of um information and also you know the um you know france paris may of 68 is a lot uh sexier sexier and cleaner yeah yes and it's got a lot more uh, it's got a lot like cooler slogans and you know getting caught with uh you know society of the spectacle in a coffee shop is a lot more uh cool looking than uh well there weren't really any books on northern ireland until the last you know couple decades i guess so Mm -hmm. Uh, information warfare keeps on yeah (laughs) um let's see here what was i gonna say i keep losing my train of thought but not in like a bad way there's just so much good to talk about. I know, I know. It's, so yeah, we're kind of feeling like we're a little all over the place, but that's, that's yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, Jackie says, and this is interesting. He said that like his motivations personally were very rooted in what he himself saw in 1968, not in like Republican history, the history of Ireland. All that stuff is cool and interesting. I mean, I'm saying that, not him, but like that is not the primary driver for probably most guys in the IRA, if Jackie's any indication. I think that like what they actually went through and what their experiences are was like obviously of prime, you know, more importance than like the history. Yeah, I think like that's a big part of what the provisional IRA um, is made up of. And, and, you know, it's interesting because like there is like an ideological component um, to like a Sinn Féin and, uh, and I guess provisional Sinn Féin at one. It's so uh, dear listener, um, it gets a little confusing because there's the, the official IRA and the provisional IRA in the political wing of the IRA um, that was trying to get into parliament was uh, the party called Sinn Féin. And then there is, of course, official Sinn Féin and provisional Sinn Féin. And these days, it's all for the most part pretty united now. Mm-hmm. At least Sinn Féin is like the IRA doesn't 
really exists in the capacity. There's a couple of weirdo guys that are still pushing it, but for the most part, Sinn Féin is a example. Anyways, Sinn Féin, um, the political ideology, I guess you could say, of the IRA, um, is, and I think this kind of reflects what Jimmy, you're getting at, in that they are just, they're, they're not informed by like a broader ideology in the sense of say like the Bolsheviks were or something mm, like that. Yeah. Um, there, so like one, one of the things that Sinn Féin, um, I, I guess you could describe it as, is, is like a left nationalist movement and that like all they really care about is having a united Ireland, all one 32 counties, it all belongs to Ireland, but then their like economic and social beliefs are for the most part lefty. Um, I mean, they are Catholics. Um, so there, there is, I guess, maybe a little bit of a social conservatism towards like uh, abortion and stuff. Although that has, I believe since changed, but you know, mainly they just want to actually unite their nation. And then kind of the idea, I think, being that like, well, once we can finally accomplish that and introduce some social programs, we'll go from there. Kind of, it, at least that's that's my read on it. The primary contradiction, if you will. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting, right? Because like in the film and the events of The Wind That Shakes the Barley, the film very much, I think, was sympathetic to like the no treaty contingent mm-hmm. versus the treaty faction, which is to say, like uh, the forces that became the Republic of Ireland versus the forces that lost in their attempt to keep fighting to unite all of Ireland. And it's not exactly a one to one here, but like Hugin goes through the history in a limited fashion the history of like the official ira and the provisional ira and it's interesting because on the face of it the official ira seems to have a better analysis and perhaps better program but they were not arguably doing the actual work that was necessary namely like self-defense yeah and then the provisional ira stepped in they were less marxist than the official ira but arguably more effective in what they were actually doing would you agree with that yes absolutely yeah i mean because so when after in 1968 um and these civil rights marches are happening for the catholic subjugated population that is economically deprived lives in effective ghettos in northern ireland um can't get housing can't get work um very much uh a second class uh or lower class you know population within northern ireland the catholics um the you know there starts being rioting and stuff and the Protestants uh, begin attacking Catholic neighborhoods and killing people and people start getting shot at these marches. And, you know, during all of this, these people are dying, their houses are getting burned out. 
um, the IRA, which traditionally was supposed to be there to rise up, you know, and defend, um, they, they didn't show up. And so what you started seeing in graffiti and the walls of these Catholic neighborhoods was IRA stands for Irish ran away. Mm -hmm. So that was the old guard official IRA, which was slower to move, but arguably more committed to like a more effective analysis and tied more to Marxism. And then, you know, and from there you have the birth of the provisional IRA, which, you know, I don't know, during this time, it's the Cold War and you're dealing with obviously a Catholic population. And so the word Marxism is very, uh, you know, frightening <laughs> to mm -hmm. that. And, you know, they, they, they kind of mentioned that in Wind That Shakes the Barley too, towards the end that, you know, you're going to scare all these farmers away with your red flags or whatever. Um, and so, you know, the provisional IRA was, yeah, much less ideologically motivated but much more effective in actually defending and uh you know making you know progress uh for the unification of ireland yeah no absolutely and actually this is see this is a thing that i wanted to bring up and i wish i was more conversant in it because i would love to be able to like expound on this but all i have really is just coogan talking about it but coogan talks about the conspiracy theory and i don't mean that in a negative sense that dublin sort of put their thumb on the scale to help the provost over the official ira because they didn't want to deal with the marxist shit yeah how interesting is that right yeah i can i can believe that coogan i think doesn't think that it's true but i can't imagine that it's not true you know there's no way that the republic of ireland wanted to deal with that no no i mean well yeah especially because you know finn gale and fiona fail or however you say it um yeah i mean fiona fail is obviously like the more republican oriented political major political party in the republic um but neither of them were at all you know, Marxists or, you know, inclined towards socialism per se. Maybe just socialism in like the broad non-Marxist sense, I think. Yeah. And in, in, yeah, in terms of like uh, social welfare programs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you, you kind of, I don't know, you, you see in the, in the second film we'll talk about um, the commitments, because that takes place primarily in the Republic, just how great that was all working out. <laughs> Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's just basically the same thing that like, you know, James Connolly, the, you know, Marxist, uh, Republican who was killed in 1916, who I think would have been kind of Ireland's Lenin had he survived, you know, he basically called it that, you know, yeah, you may change the flag, but you'll still be run by bankers, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. Absolutely. Let's see here. So Jackie kind of moves into talking about the internment policy which was a specific well it was a pol it was an ongoing policy but there was also like a period of time in which the british army came in and basically just interned a shit ton of like irish catholics suspected of being in the ira and mm -hmm. naturally <laughs> this was super fucked up and repressive 
lots of tortures, beatings, and goes without saying a lot of innocent people included too, for whatever that term means. And I think the filmmaker, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Trash, but I think the filmmaker is like, oh, did that radicalize people? And then I think Jackie was like, well, no, not really, because everyone was already fucking pissed in the first place. <laughs> Just made him angrier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then Coogan, of course, talks at length about the tortures that were going on during this internment period, which is separate from the, you know, prisoner strikes that would come later with other different torture situations, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think Coogan actually lists out five types of torture that they were using at this juncture. I, I got it right here. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, Coogan lists off. Uh, it was referred to as the five techniques, uh, which consisted of hooding, sleep deprivation, white noise, a starvation diet, and standing for hours spread eagled against the wall, quote, leaning on their fingertips like the hypotenuse of a right tr- right angled triangle. Which doesn't Jackie actually refer to doing that? I think he mentions it mentions it in passing. Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, it's kind of just like an offhand, which you know, yeah, it speaks to the, I don't know, um, very kind of Irish attitude. I think to discussing kind of the gallows black humor kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and then Coogan points out that the techniques were accompanied by continual harassment, blows, insults, and questioning. The treatment goes on for six or seven days, and it produces yep. acute anxiety states, personality changes, depression, and sometimes early death. Yep. Traumatizing a population. Yeah. Coogan says that many men, and this is like psychiatrists saying this, a lot of this produced broken men who did not, many of whom didn't survive into their 50s. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of this what the British were doing with this internment stuff. Um, it was all stuff they had learned um, through, you know, cause this is, you know, this is the tail end of the British empire, the late sixties, seventies. This is the last gasps of it, I guess, or at least, you know, and it's traditionally thought of, obviously it still kind of exists, but that's more tinfoil. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> but like, um, yeah. Coogan talks about like, um, you know, that, you know, dealing using these techniques that like the British had used in like uh, Borneo and stuff and like versus like the mm-hmm. Mau Mau, um, you know, like uh, Coogan says, for instance, like uh, the problem for General Tuzo, who was one of the leaders at the time of internment um, and his colleagues was that techniques which might have been employed effectively against the wild man of Borneo were apt to end up on page one if deployed against the even wilder men of Clannard and Bally Murphy. And yeah, which this actually ties in to, I, I think kind of like the racial stuff that we were getting, we were talking about earlier um, or, or just, you know, the subjugation of uh, the colonized people and stuff and, and how they differentiated that. But yeah, for sure. Because they were definitely using techniques that would have flown in like, a colonial situation and they were trying to use them in a place where like everyone spoke English and they were actually technically British subjects and they had like photographers and shit. Yeah. There's just, um, yeah, just kind of reading over, um, you know, there, uh, Coogan in his book is, uh, talking about, um, 
yeah, this like uh, the the, the early implement implementation of uh, like internment and stuff and these techniques, which you know they they kind of just tried to copy and paste from you know Brunei and Oman and stuff like that, where or like Aden, Cyprus, Kenya, Malaya, um, which is you know all these uh, places where the British had implemented uh, such like counterinsurgency techniques and stuff, and um, yeah, which uh, uh, he introduces the great term that uh, the British had for the Irish Catholics, which is bogwog, mm -hmm. which I think I can say that since I'm an American, <laughs> and wog's more of a British slur. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> No, for sure. I I did. I was going to bring up the bogwog. Good lord! But they also tested out rubber bullets for the first time in Northern Ireland. I think Coogan says that. But I did want to return actually to the torture because, for sure, this was stuff that they were doing in like Kenya, Aden, Cyprus, all those places, Malaysia. But on the flip side, I don't want to also ignore that. This is literally some MK Ultra shit. Mind you, you know, in the UK, we actually don't have a name for them doing that same parallel research. And they were decidedly doing it. They were, in fact, studying MK Ultra stuff before the United States. We don't have a name for the programs they were doing, but. They knew how to break people. They knew how to like permanently damage a person forever. They were not ignorant as to what this was doing to people. I think that like Coogan, as much as I like him, I think he might be ignorant of the, M for lack of a better term, MK Ultra side of all of this shit specifically. Yeah, I definitely get that. Um... I mean, I think Coogan's coming from a very sincere and honest place mm -hmm. for his generation, you know, um, and especially before we, or, you know, um, knowledge of like programs. Cause like, you know, you think about it, like uh church committee and stuff was happening like around this time. And I guess, you know, Coogan writes this book in the nineties, but yeah, I, I don't know. It would be very interesting to have like a comprehensive history of like the troubles written about from somebody who is more familiar with these, you know, less and less, uh, you know, with each passing year, uh, harebrained, you know, like the, uh, the validity of like MK Ultra and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Absolutely, because I suspect that they were doing the torture stuff to just break populations, but I suspect also that they had a different playbook for flipping people into informants, which was a very common thing that actually Jackie talks about trying them trying to like basically coerce you through every black trick in the book into basically flipping mm -hmm. uh, and honestly when i was hearing him describing that it actually made me think of like just like detectives just normal cops and the way they will entrap and try to flip people into being criminal informants oh yeah i mean mm -hmm. 
you know, yeah, honestly, like these techniques are, you know, in, in as much sense as, you know, it's kind of a matter of how you want to view, you know, the lens through which you view these things. But I mean, what, there's not a whole lot of difference between a counterinsurgency campaign, let's say like in Northern Ireland or Vietnam and uh, I don't know, uh, South side of Chicago or something, you know, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, obviously like the average listener of this program will um, probably, you know, take that almost for granted uh, or I would hope so. Or at least understands like the nuance that like we understand that the material circumstances are not the same, but that certain playbooks of power are being used in similar ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you notice, Trash, that of course, even though Jackie said, and I, you know, he's not lying, but like he said, even though the history is not like the main thing for him you know, for motivations. He did point mm-hmm. out that the only English Pope there ever was, was the yeah. Pope that gave Ireland to England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I wrote that down. My notes with a little lol next to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, shortly thereafter in the same sort of period, uh, Jackie says <laughs> that he's like, you know, it's not just like, you know, the RUC, that's the constabulary. It's not just MI5 or British intelligence. There are Germans, there are Americans, there are French agents in Northern Ireland. He says, he said, they come as photographers, they come as sociologists, they even come as revolutionaries. I really liked that passage because it speaks to the weaponization or the cover of sociology, of photographers, journalists you know people larping as revolutionaries perhaps Mm -hmm. very interesting to think about yeah yeah i mean and yeah just you know the um i guess the solidarity of like international western capital you know to Mm -hmm. work towards the same goals obviously like uh collusion you know amongst like yeah obviously nationalities don't really like mean much to the the honest controlling powers you know um they're all working in the interest of you know business and capital which northern ireland is very much a economic uh issue as it is uh you know or it's actually honestly it's it's more an issue of like economics for uh london than it is like any kind of issue of national identity or religion or anything like that yeah london doesn't give a shit about the history it doesn't care about like you know rights on paper they care about the economics yeah they and honestly london doesn't give a shit about ulster protestants um and and how <laughs> yeah. you know a, a part of britain they are like they, they it's it's a backwater you know fucking province to to london you know to the and a constant source of embarrassment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, these are essentially to London, just backwater hits as far as they're concerned, culturally speaking. But the thing is, is that, I mean, Belfast and Derry major are major manufacturing centers mm-hmm. and shipping is a huge part of that, at least in this time period. Things have changed since then. And my honest opinion, hence why they're, you know, starting to give less of a shit about 
you know, who Northern Ireland belongs to. But anyways, um, you know, which is, yeah, why I think it is important for London to, at, during this time period, to maintain this, like, ethno-nationalist, um, or, or, you know, this ethnic uh, ruling group of Ulster Protestants. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of heavy industry, historically. A lot of, like, different farming, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's interesting, because Jackie tells a story. I wanted to run this past you. So Jackie tells the story of the laundry service. Oh, yeah, Foursquare Laundry. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> now, basically, the the short version is that British intelligence, I think he says the SAS specifically, Mm-hmm. they were running a laundry service at a loss, in fact, because doing laundry allowed them to run, like, you know, paraffin checks to see if, like, you've been firing a gun or, like, you know, if someone has blood on their clothes. It, yep. it enabled them to collect intelligence. The IRA figured it out and shot them to death. <laughs> <laughs> Which yep. I'm laughing because... I'm laughing and I know that, you know, might seem grotesque, but like it, it he, like Jackie was telling it almost as a joke, which <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it's just kind of like a slice of life, like to be in, you know, like you, you just try to get your fucking laundry done and Hey, there's this laundry. And then of course it's like fucking SAS, like mm-hmm. psychos, uh, you know, um, which, yeah, I actually, yeah, I was, I was trying to look it up while you're, bringing it up but i mean um i was going over it earlier today but when coogan's talking about the sas at some point in the book he does bring up uh four square laundry it's it's just kind of like a brief mention of it um Mm -hmm. and he's just kind of going in more broadly like who the sas were and what their whole deal was which for the listener uh is some like spooky ass shit (laughs) sas are yeah creepy yeah (laughs) We'll talk about them more, I think, in a in a little bit. But yeah. like, it's so funny because Coogan will basically like do them because he's necessarily talking about a very complicated thing that occurred over many several decades. He'll basically like refer to something, and that thing that he's referring to could itself be an entire book. Yeah, which is like so fascinating because like Coogan also tells the story of this undercover ring. Uh, I fuck. What what acronym is this? M R F. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Let me see. I I know. I just yeah. I I have the Kindle version anyway, so I can like look it up too. But let me get to the yeah. It's acronyms. like yeah. It's military something. It's it's like an intelligence wing. One of the intelligence wings of the army. But I was just reading this earlier today. Yeah. I don't know if I can find it right now. It's, I think I can find it. Let me see. MRF. Okay. Military Reaction Force. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. Great name. <laughs> <laughs> so they were operating massage parlors in order to gain intelligence. And it was tied in with SAS. And again, the IRA identified it. And I think they went in and <laughs> shot it up too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which, um, you know, ties it like, you know, I think one of the most, one of the best insights that uh, Coogan has. Oh yeah. Um, well, actually, I have MRF listed as military reconnaissance force. In 
yeah. here. Okay, no, because yeah. I have on page 190, he defines it as military reaction force. And then on 286, I don't know if that's the page you're on. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if it's the I'm... same. It does say military reconnaissance, reconnaissance force. So I don't know if it's like both I, I did or notice if they're different or what. Yeah, I did notice that there are like some typos in this mm. um, here and there. Um, so it's possible. But yeah, I, I think it is in this chapter where he goes into essentially that, um, you know, the war between the IRA and the British occupying forces is basically a war of two intelligence agencies. Yes. You know. Yeah. Intel is everything. And actually, you know, I think um, in a little bit in the film, you know, Jackie gets or they, they have a scene with an interview with a British officer where he's talking about, you know, Intel is everything in this. By the way, I looked it up on Wikipedia, actually, and it turns out that both terms are used. I don't know if there was like a, you know, like a period of time when they switched the name, but they both refer to the same thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, leave it to the Brits to have meaningless, you know, <laughs> constant, you know, bureaucratic, nitpicking, legalistic language for literally everything. That's the world we live in now. Yep. Uh, and actually, no less than BBC interviewed a former MRF soldier who said, we were not there to act like an army unit. We were there to act like a terror group interesting and that they were there to cause confusion and also we operated initially with them thinking we were the uvf very interesting yeah which is kind of an interesting uh <laughs> interesting 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 a lot of false flag shit going on even on the other side Yeah. 
Thank you. 